Good morning. You could join me in, in your Bibles in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You know, in the course of life, we're constantly confronted with decisions. And though we're puzzled sometimes, I think 99% of the time, we know exactly what we ought to do. And Paul really sums up our goal in chapter 5 and verse 9, where he says, it is to be pleasing to God. I hope that you as a Christian would say, that's my goal. I want to please the Lord. But just because that's our goal doesn't ensure that that's going to happen. Because our choices are directly linked to our motivations. And everybody has two natural, compelling motivations. They are linked to our fallen nature. And those two motivations are peer pressure and selfishness. What others want and what I want. When I am confronted with a decision, oftentimes those natural motivations kick in and I ask myself, what are others' expectations? What are my desires? I am naturally motivated by the fear of man and the love of self. If you've been a Christian very long, I hope that you're familiar with Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Verses you ought to memorize. As I say that, I'm going to try to quote them, so if I mess up, I used to know them. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice that flies right in the teeth of selfishness. I've got to die to self. And then how does verse 2 begin? Do not be conformed to this world. Don't let this world squeeze you into its mold. That flies right into the teeth of peer pressure. So there he says, here's, here's the solution in your Christian life. Die to self to overcome that motivation of selfishness. And don't be conformed to the world in order to overcome that motivation of peer pressure. And then he goes on at the end of verse 2, and he says, you do this in order to prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Not know what the will of God is. You already know it. When you do these things, you overcome those natural motivations and you prove the will of God in your life. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 15, we're given two new motivations to counteract those natural motivations. And the two motivations are the fear of the Lord in verses 11 to 13 and the love of Christ in verses 14 and 15. We are to have the fear of the Lord in, in contrast to the fear of man and we're to have the love of Christ in contrast to the love of ourselves. Now, last time we started to look at the fear of the Lord in verses 11 to 13, and we're going to finish that aspect this morning. Paul links the concept of the fear of the Lord with an event, and that event is the judgment seat of Christ in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. 
one day we will each one stand before the Lord and we will be examined. All our deeds, our words, our motives, our thoughts, our private lives, those things that nobody else knows about but me. And in light of that manifestation, that examination, all of my pretenses are going to fall away. All of my masks are going to fall off. All of the facades will dissolve. All of my explanations, all of my justifications, all of my excuses that sound so good to me right now are going to sound empty and hollow in the presence of Christ. All that special consideration, all that anticipated privilege, all of those loopholes, all of those exceptions that I'm counting on will fade in the light of the reality that when it comes to judgment, God is no respecter of persons. We're going to be made manifest. Our lives are going to be revealed in His light. Now don't get confused. The issue here is service, not salvation. Everybody who shows up at the judgment seat of Christ is a saved person. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13, he says we're going to show up there to have, to, to have the, the work that we have done tested for its quality. This is going to be a time of reward and loss. 1 Corinthians 3.14 says, If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. The judgment seat of Christ was something Paul looked forward to and longed for. He says in 2 Timothy 4.8 that the judge on that day is going to reward me with a crown of righteousness, and not only for me, but for everybody who loves his appearing. It's something we can long for. But it's also something that many people are going to be ashamed of and cower back from. Because 1 John 2.28 says, there, will those, there are those who will shrink away in shame at His coming. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I don't know about you, but that's a sobering thought to me. Jesus said in Matthew 12.38, And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. Romans 14.10 says, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God, so that each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. 1 Peter 1.17 says, If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. The idea of the judgment seat of Christ should cause a proper fear of the Lord. And that ought to motivate me. And Paul mentions in verses 11 to 13 three ways it motivated him. It affects my passion, my posture, and my priority. And I want to look at those with you this morning. First of all, my passion. Look at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. When I am motivated by the fear of the Lord, my passion should be to reach out to other people. We persuade men. The fear of man causes me to be persuaded by others. 
The fear of the Lord causes me to persuade others. This is an important motivation. Now, I want to look at this from three angles. Number one, the fear of the Lord motivates me in that I should be awed by the one who has called me and given me the responsibility to reach others with the gospel. I think of Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and it says the train of his robe, just the end of his robe filled the temple. And cherubim were there and they had six wings and with two they covered their face and with two they covered their feet and with two they flew and they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah saw this scene and what did he do? He fell back and he said, woe is me for I am unclean. He stepped back in the fear of the Lord. And the Bible tells us a cherub, a cherub took a coal off the altar and touched Isaiah's mouth. And he says, your sins are paid for and you're forgiven. And then the Lord said, whom shall I send and who will go for me? And what did Isaiah say? Here am I. Send me. When you see the Lord in all his glory and realize who it is, that has paid the price to forgive you, your response ought to be, I'm ready to go and persuade others with the gospel that has transformed my life. That's the first angle. The second angle is that the fear of the Lord motivates me in that I do not want to stand before Jesus Christ one day and have to say, I didn't tell anybody. I don't want to stand before him one day and say, I took all the talents that you gave me and I hid them in the ground and did nothing with them. I don't want to stand before him one day and say, Jesus, I kept your death, burial, and resurrection a secret. Because he's going to say what? Why? And I'm going to say, would you believe I couldn't find an opportunity? I told everybody about the Cardinals and how much I, I... I had statistics on Albert Pujols, knew his average all year long. I told people about that. Didn't have an opportunity. Couldn't get around to... Would you believe that this world is just too wicked for me to share that? No. The reality is going to be in all honesty, I'm going to have to say to him, I feared man more than I feared you. That's why I didn't share. I feared man more than I feared you. You really didn't fit into the crowd that I was trying to please. I was ashamed of you. That's what it will come down to. Jesus said in Mark 8.38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The fear of the Lord motivates me in that I don't want him to be ashamed of me one day. There's a great verse in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16, and it talks about those who desire that other country, that heavenly country. And it says because they live their life making it clear that they desire that other country, 
it says God is not ashamed to be called their God because he's made a city for them. I want that to be said about me. He's not ashamed to be called my God. And then the third aspect, or the third angle, is that the fear of the Lord motivates me in that I don't want others to have to face his judgment. If the judgment seat of Christ puts the fear of the Lord in me, if the idea of standing before Jesus, who has already said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, no punishment left, but if thinking about standing before him causes me to tremble, then what will judgment be like for unbelievers? Here's a verse for you, 1 Peter 4, 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Knowing that judgment begins with the household of God and knowing that it's going to be something awful for those who don't know Him should cause me to be going out and saying to people, come in the house. Come in the door. The door is open. Grace is extended to you. I think of Luke chapter 16 where the fear of the Lord motivated the rich man. Remember him? He got into the torment of the flames and he said, Send Lazarus back to warn my five brothers so that they don't have to come to this place of torment. Pull out all the stops. Do whatever it takes. I've got to persuade men not to come here. Five minutes in hell turned an unbeliever into an evangelist. And we need that same perspective on the judgment of God because it will motivate us to reach out to those that we know those that are our loved ones, those in our family who don't yet know Jesus Christ. Want a little perspective on this? Listen to the words of the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.31. He says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A healthy dose of the fear of the Lord will motivate you to reach out to others second way the fear of the Lord motivates me is my posture. And that's also in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, notice, but we are made manifest to God. And that word made manifest is the same word Paul used back in verse 10 when he said we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's a word that means to uncover, to lay bare, to reveal, to make visible. What is Paul saying? Because we will be made manifest someday in the presence of Christ at the judgment seat, it ought to motivate us to be revealed right now in His presence. I told you a couple of weeks away, ago, the way to circumvent the judgment seat of Christ in the future is to have a judgment seat of Christ today. To be revealed before Him today. Paul says, I'm not waiting for the judgment seat. I'm getting those hidden things revealed today. I'm not waiting for the judgment seat. I'm going to have God examine my motives today. 
I'm bringing them to the light right now. In 1 Corinthians 11.31, he says, if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. Judge yourself today, there's no judgment tomorrow. You say, well, Dan, how do I have a judgment seat? You know what? I try to have a judgment seat at least once a day. Maybe you have a better walk than I do. But I find once a day is the minimum. And how do I have the judgment seat of Christ? Well, listen to this verse. You can turn to it if you like. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Another fairly familiar verse. It says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What's the Word of God able to do? It's able to judge my thoughts and judge my intentions. And he says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I can have the judgment seat of Christ right now by opening the Word of God and being honest with what God says to me. To let Him take this Word and cut me open. Cut me bare. And when I'm cut bare and I see my intentions are wrong and my life is wrong and my actions are wrong and my words are wrong, what do I do? 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you've been a Christian very long, I don't have to tell you how good it feels to be filleted by the Word of God. You're going on hiding something in your life and you're unhappy, you're unhappy, you're unhappy, and something happens and God opens up the honesty in your heart and you reveal it and you lay it open to Him and He forgives you. And it feels so good to be just sliced open. Kind of like an infection. If you can cut it open and get it to the light, what happens? It's healed. It's better. Some of us walk around as Christians and we've got infections inside that we're unwilling to open up and God is saying, open it up, open it up, open it up. And when we open it up, we find relief and forgiveness and healing. I love that feeling of being sliced open by the Word of God, to get real with God, to get honest with God. That's having the judgment seat right now. Somebody asked me last week, well, you know, is the Lord going to bring up things that we did in the past that we've already confessed? Well, I don't think He will, because that would be double jeopardy. You know, if, if, you've, if you've confessed a sin to the Lord, what does 1 John 1, 9 say? It says He not only forgives you, but He cleanses you from all unrighteousness. I take that to mean if I'm honest before the Lord, even if I don't remember all the things I did, because you know what? I can't remember all the things I did because a lot of things I, I did in the past and have done recently, I have blind spots and I can't even see that they were wrong. But if I come with an honest heart before the Lord and confess that to the Lord, guess what? He not only forgives what I'm asking Him for, but He cleanses me from all the unrighteousness that I didn't even know about. I didn't even acknowledge because I didn't understand it. 
See, God's not looking for us to list every detail and catalog it. And he's not going to bring those things up in the future. And even if he does, guess what? There are things in my testimony. When, when I give my testimony, people come to me sometimes and go, I can't believe you talked about all that junk in your past. You know why I can talk about all that junk in my past? Because it's forgiven. And it's cleansed. And it's not going to be an unawkward thing to stand in the presence of the Lord and talk about what I did that he's already forgiven. The things that I'm going to be ashamed of are the things that I've not acknowledged to him. And I've still been hiding from him. And that's where the shame will come in. Malcolm Muggridge wrote a book called The 20th Century Testimony. I just want to read you a quote out of that. He says, when I look back on my life nowadays, which I sometimes do, what strikes me most forcibly about it is that what seemed at the time most significant and seductive seems now most futile and absurd. For instance, success in all its various guises, being known and being praised, ostensible pleasures like acquiring money or traveling, going to and from in the world and up and down in it like Satan, explaining and experiencing whatever Vanity Fair has to offer. In retrospect, all these exercises in self-gratification seem pure fantasy, what Pasquale called licking the earth. How does somebody look back on their life with that perspective? They've had the judgment seat today. They've gotten honest before the Lord and they look back and say, the things that I did yesterday were futile. And I want to change my life in my walk with the Lord. That's what he's saying the fear of the Lord motivates us to do. It motivates us to be honest with him, to be manifest before him today. If we had to wait for the judgment seat of Christ to get manifest, none of us would love his appearing. We can love his appearing because we can have that happen now. It should encourage you to keep short accounts with God today. It should encourage you to be transparent and honest before the Lord today, to be real with him every day. It should challenge you to let the word of God cut through your pretense and your guise and make you real and honest and transparent. And then thirdly, is my priority. And that priority is the heart rather than appearance. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When we understand the fear of the Lord, our priority moves from appearance which is what the world is concerned about, to the heart, which is what God is concerned about. Look at verse 11 again. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. Now notice a couple things in that last phrase. Number one, Paul says, I hope. 
we've been made manifest to God. I hope we're made manifest to you. Now, when he says, I hope, what does that mean? I hope it happens, but it's not my chief concern. My chief concern is that I get manifest before God. If you understand that and you see me rightly, that's an added benefit. But that's not my first priority. My first priority is to be manifest to the Lord. And then secondly, I want you to notice that he says in verse 11, we will be manifest in your what? Consciences. You see, if you're going to see that I am made manifest to the Lord, you're not going to see it with your eyes. You're going to see it with your consciences. Because it's not something that happens by appearance. It's something that happens in the heart. How do you deal with criticism? When somebody criticizes you and you're trying to explain, well, this is what I meant to do and this was my motive and you misunderstood what I did. and You ever get in that trap? When you're criticized, this verse tells me, you make sure that you are laid bare before God. And if other people don't understand that, then that's because they're looking at appearance and not at the heart. And then verse 12, we are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Now that last phrase is the principle of the world. It's the policy of the world. Pride in appearance. Remember the commercial that used to, uh, they used to have uh, Andre Agassi on the commercial, and he would say this phrase, image is everything. Well, that's the motto of the world. Paul says no. When you have the proper priority, the heart is everything. And so Paul says, we're not coming commending ourselves. That would be the way of the world. We're simply unveiling our hearts. And for that reason, you should be proud of us. Now let me ask you a question. Who are you proud of? Who's your hero? Who do you have in the poster on the wall in your bedroom? Who do you model your life after? And then when you realize who that person is, ask yourself this question. Would they rate as a hero of God? Paul says, we want you to be proud of us. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel is sent by God to anoint a king. Now, Israel already had a king. King Saul, he was tall, handsome, impressive, looked like a king. But he wasn't God's man. And so Samuel goes to Jesse's house and, and Eliab comes out, the firstborn, and Samuel says, this has got to be him. This guy's impressive. Look. And God said, no. Because man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And so Jesse paraded his other sons in front of Samuel and Samuel looked at them and they were all rejected. And finally Samuel had to inquire in case there was another son and found out there was David who Jesse didn't even bring in because he didn't think he was qualified and he had to go get him because he was watching 
the sheep. And he came in, and Samuel said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. David, the one about whom God said in Acts 13, 22, He's the man after my own heart. Didn't have the appearance of a king, but he had the heart of a king. And that is God's priority. And let me tell you this. When you get God's priority, I can guarantee you that it will go against the flow of the world. Jesus said this in Luke 16, 15. You are those who justify themselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Wow. The things that men esteem highly, God sees as detestable. Because God's priority is not appearance, it's heart. What is the heart? What's the chief organ of our physical body? We don't see it, but it's invaluable. And here he's speaking figuratively. It's the center of my inward life. In 1 Peter 3, 4, he refers to it as the hidden person of the heart. It's the real you inside this flesh carton that you have. And, and some of us spend all our time making the flesh carton look pretty. And we have a problem in our heart. It's the inner man that he spoke about in chapter 4 and verse 16 that's being renewed day by day. You want to know who your hero ought to be? It ought to be somebody who has his heart laid bare before God, who is transparent before God, who is honest before God. See, when I see somebody like that, it makes me proud. When I see someone like that, I say, that's somebody I want to model myself my answer to a world that says appearance is everything, my answer to a world that tries to conform me into that mold that says looks is everything, appearance is everything, perception is everything, image is everything, I want to say to that world, the heart is everything. The inner man is what matters. And just to emphasize the fact that appearance isn't the issue, notice what Paul says in verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Paul says, we may appear to the world to be crazy. In fact, if you remember back in Acts chapter 26 and verse 24, Paul was standing before Festus, the governor, sharing the gospel with him. And Festus said, Paul, you're out of your mind. He was sharing the gospel. He looked crazy. To the governor. He says, if I look crazy, okay, or I may appear to you of sound mind, but that's not the issue. What is the issue? The issue is the heart. So the fear of the Lord is our motivation. It motivates us three ways. My passion, and, and do the little test today. What is your passion? Is your passion to reach others for Christ? Second, it should affect my posture. Is my posture being honest before God and open with Him, or am I living my life hiding things in a closet and not revealing them to anyone else, including the Lord? And thirdly, it's my priority, that my priority is the heart, the inner man, 
rather than the outer man. We're going to close our service by taking communion together. And this is a great opportunity to have a little judgment seat right where you're sitting today. Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 28, you are to examine yourself and then you're to eat the bread and drink the cup.